0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. So
1: we'll turn now to our first discussion, which is numeracy, arithmetic, maths, what age and what stage. This is largely here, because I have heard lots of mathematicians arguing with each other, uh, using the same kind of language, and ultimately it turns out that one of them is talking about primary and one of them is talking about tertiary. Um, and the reason why they're arguing is they both think they're thinking about they're talking about secondary. So quite a lot of the discussion revolves around actually targeting which particular age you think you're talking about and of course which stage since children don't learn necessarily on an age-related basis. So to help us discuss that, I'm delighted to welcome our panelists here today. Um, I shall introduce them now and then they'll go up in order uh, in order to give us five minutes thoughts and then we'll open the debate up. So we have, uh, second in from the uh, far right, is Lynn McClure, who became the director of Enrich in 2010. She's worked with children and adults in primary and secondary, further education colleges and universities, covering the whole patch, uh, and set up a very successful maths education consultancy which took her all over the world. An author of many articles and books, Lynn is very involved both as the Enrich director and as an individual in mathematics education policy. Naturally, she's a member of the Advisory Committee on Mathematics Education and, almost as naturally, is currently involved in redrafting the mathematics curriculum. Next to her, another Lynn but without an E, Lynn Churchman, is a nationally well-known and regarded figure in the mathematics education field and, since 2007, has been chair of the National Association of Mathematics Advisors. A professional association for mathematics education advisors, inspectors, and consultants. She's director of the National Mathematics Partnership and has been a member of the, of, uh, the Association of Teachers of Mathematics since 1980. She's also been an advisor and a consultant to the National Centre for Excellence in Teaching of Mathematics, a director of maths at ARC schools, a specialist advisor uh, of mathematics to Ofsted, and the principal manager for the mathematics team at the former regulator, the QCA. Jenny Golding is a vice-chair of the uh, Advisory Committee of Mathematics Education. Um, From an Oxford first degree and research, she spent 35 years teaching maths to three-year-olds to 93-year-olds, again covering the entire patch. She's worked in primary and secondary teacher development across the globe, increasingly adding that to teaching in schools. And since summer 2012, she's been based in higher education, although still working with a variety of teachers and young people. At the far end, we have Tim Oates, who joined Cambridge Assessment in May 2006 to spearhead the rapidly growing Assessment, Research and Development Division. He was previously at the Regulator of the QCA, where he'd been Head of Research and Statistics. Tim's produced work which commands national and international respect. His most recent work has been on a new pan-European eight-level qualifications framework. He's advised the UK government for many years on both practical matters and assessment policy. Tim has a first from the University of Sussex in philosophy with literature and an MA in philosophy from the same institution. Now, all four of our panel are well-known for their passionate approach to the subject, so I'm hoping there will be sparks. So, Lynn.
0: So, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to contribute today. I'd like to show you um, a little clip which is a very homemade video, and as you watch it, I'd like you to maybe consider why you think that I think that this is a suitable start for this afternoon's proceedings. Well, I said it was homemade and obviously one of the reasons I wanted to show it to you is because she's very cute. Um, But it's really because I think that often in such um, situations as this, we are focusing much more on the end product of education, what the needs of higher education and further education and employers are. And what I wanted to do in my five minutes was talk a little bit about the journey of mathematics and something about the beginning of the, of the mathematical journey. So I'm going to talk a bit about beginnings and ends. I'm going to talk a little bit about habits of mind uh, as well as content. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the effective and the cognitive domains and how they're equally important. So one of the things that's um, really interesting is that there are a large number of children who leave primary school with uh, not as much competence in mathematics as we would like. And I know that Lynn will be talking much more about that later. So one of the issues is wh- why, why is that so Why are children at 11 years old unable to do the things that we think they should be able to do? So I suppose the first thing is, well, maybe our aspirations are just much too high, in which case the new national curriculum is going to come as a bit of a shock because it's even higher. But maybe if it's not that, and a lot of people don't think it's that, maybe it's that actually we're just not teaching it terribly well. And I'd like to propose the idea that actually one of the reasons that we don't teach it very well at primary school is that we don't really have any national sense of what a didactic is for mathematics. That we actually have quite a scattergun approach, um, very often led by political um, initiatives, about what is the flavour of the month of how we should teach children, especially young children, the, the basic principles of mathematics. That, of course, is being diluted at the moment by the way in which we are reducing teacher training, um, taking teacher training away largely from higher education institutions. And what we need are primary teachers especially who have a deep understanding of mathematical pedagogy and are allowed the time and the resources to be able to do that properly. So there's a personal and national impact of children not uh, achieving competence by the end of primary school but what actually do we mean by competence what do we mean by proficiency um, these two uh, paragraphs are taken from the NCTM website the NCTM does a fantastic job in offering money for teachers to do um, action research projects and at the moment these are two action research projects uh, where teachers are being asked if they'd like to um, uh, do some some cooperative work on these, and I think the thing that 's interesting here is that the arithmetic proficiency is the project that is being advertised for primary schools, whereas the mathematical proficiency is being advertised for secondary schools and My sense is um, well, we know that arithmetic is important, and for this current government it 's especially important, but I think maybe there 's a bit more than the procedures and the understanding which are talked about there, that's essential actually to be a mathematician. I'm sure you've heard of Al Cuoco, and this is um, a paragraph from the beginning of his seminal paper, um, Habits of Mind. So I'll just give you a moment just to read that. So they go on to say that whilst we still have a curriculum that sees maths as a mechanism for communicating results, we'll always have a curriculum where the content changes, but the actual study of mathematics remains the same. Students learn properties, do problems, and then move on. So the context may be modern, but the actual mathematics that the students do is still as far away from actual mathematics as it ever was. Later on in the same paper, al talks about inculcating habits of mind. So as well as the arithmetical proficiency and the mathematical proficiency, both of which I acknowledge are very important, I'd like to see more emphasis on inculcating habits of mind, mathematical habits of mind. And I don't think that that is something that we should restrict to secondary pupils. I'd like to see us inculcating habits of mind, mathematical habits of mind, starting with very young children, who are intensely... Um, Inquisitive. And these are Coco's habits of mind. I love the term pattern sniffers, I think it makes me think of something like the BFG. Um, But you can talk to small children about being pattern sniffers, having a mathematical frame of mind when they're doing anything, whether it be in the mathematics lesson or whether it be elsewhere. Conjectures and guesses, these are all sort of allied verbs which I think are, are really interesting ways of thinking about doing mathematics. You have to have some content on which to um, uh, inculcate these habits of mind, but it's the habits of mind I'm more interested in than the content. And lastly, the effect as well as the cognitive domain. Um, Nardine Stewart's survey of quiet disaffection in in, uh, mathematics schools was was, um, with key stage 3 pupils, and the acronym TIRED was the way in which they described their experience of being in mathematics lessons. We have to be able to do better than that. If we're going to have have students who want to study mathematics post-16... ...then we have to do something to make mathematics much more enjoyable and much more challenging. That doesn't mean to say it has to be fun, but it has to be challenging. And if you think about the look on Alyssa's face at the end of that film... ...and compare it to the attitude that those students had in Key Stage 3... Uh, we 've got a lot of work to do. thank
2: you Thank you too for providing me with the opportunity to uh, uh, offer our perspective from um, the national numeracy end. Um, we i haven 't done a PowerPoint presentation um, In these five minutes I want to spend a little bit of time saying uh, a little bit about us, why we're here, what we think we can do and what we think we can contribute um, and then spend the majority of the time looking at uh, our perspective on what's wrong uh, with maths, what age stage, um, what does seem to be working and what doesn't from our perspective. All the uh, comments I make and the things I refer to are on the website, uh, which is on the screen. So we are a newly formed, um, one trip pony. We're a, a single issue charity. Um, and our focus is on improving, helping to improve numeracy across the piece, across the piece in the cradle to grave sense. Um, we've got, if you go onto the website, we've got three Rather bold aims. One is to transform public attitudes to maths and numeracy. The second is to contribute to achieving a measurable transformation of maths in schools. And the third is to achieve a measurable transformation of maths numeracy for adults. So we recognise we're probably here for the long haul um we're not going to achieve that in a year or two or ten um we think it's a generational thing Uh, and part of the reason we think that i think and and trustees are very um uh very joined up on this part of the reason we think that is because there's several generations worth of um in terms of attitudes and mindset in particular which i'll come back to in a minute Um, that have built up to where we've got now. So actually unravelling those and and trying to correct some of those uh, is going to take a while. Um, So we have those three aims. Uh, We do have on the website, and it does come back to um, the part of the debate today, I think, about numeracy, arithmetic, maths, uh, what is it? We actually, if you go on the website, define and describe numeracy as a life skill. Um, And that being numerate goes uh, beyond simply doing sums, and it goes beyond what maths you might have experienced at school, whatever age you are. Um, But it does mean having a confidence, a competence, uh, a self-belief to use numbers and to think mathematically and to think numerically in everyday life, in all aspects of your life, whether it's work, social... um, Leisure, personal. So some of the um, references on the film clip about uh, mortgages and knowing credit deals uh, and all those sorts of things, we're encompassing that in the being numerate bit. Um, And we're unapologetic, I think, for um, believing and messaging that every person in the UK, at whatever age, at whatever stage, can reach a level of numeracy that allows them to meet their full potential in their personal, social, leisure, work, life. And aspects of their life should not be limited by their level of innumeracy or their lack of confidence and capacity in numeracy. Poor numeracy is a huge and neglected issue. We've all seen, and we've got a website full of, um, statistics, research papers, data um, that... Uh, really embodies some of the uh, clips that were there in the first video at the start so for example the skills for life survey showed that 17 million adults were working below level one qualifications framework level one uh, at numeracy compared to five million in literacy Um, so it's a massive difference however numeracy remains hidden behind literacy everywhere Um, and everybody gets that you have to do something about literacy. Um, Not everybody necessarily gets that you have to or can do something about numeracy. And there's all sorts of statistics that that you all have seen that uh, we have compiled on the website. Um, So, for example, adults with poor numeracy are twice as likely to be unemployed. Children at school who struggle with numeracy are twice as likely to be excluded from school as those who don't, etc. There's there's, uh, lots and lots of evidence. So, what's missing, why are we in that situation? Um, there's three things in this short time I wanted to um, draw attention to. Um, one is, the and Lynn touched on it to some degree, um, I think a big missing piece is the whole um, issue around mindset. And those of us, us that work with learners at whatever stage and whatever age um, need to recognise much more strongly the importance of mindset and uh, sort of psychological disposition uh, to maths. So, for example, the it's cool to say you're naff at maths and wear this badge of honour all the time, sorry, that says you're naff at maths. Um, it's cool to do that. We have to do something about that. As a nation, we have to try and sort that out. Um, and some of that's about convincing learners and those that work with learners... Um, working hard to convince learners that there is no such thing as a maths gene. Actually, if, I'm going back to the mathematical habits of mind, if we develop perseverance and resilience, and again, there's quite a lot of emerging evidence about resilience, grit, whatever you want to call it, uh, actually, that can uh, hugely impact on how successful you are um, mathematically, numerically, um, a lot more so than any uh, form of maths gene. So, Not attending to the attitudes and mindset piece um, and and not giving it the the sort of, um, and I hope we do that in this forum, not giving it the the sort of um, status it deserves in terms of looking hard at its impact, I think is a mistake. That's one of the things that's wrong. Thank you. I think one of the things that's also wrong, um, and I know people are working on it at the moment, the curriculum's wrong. Um, And I'm not at all convinced that the new curriculum is going to be any less wrong. Uh, If you look on the website, we've developed an essentials of numeracy model. um, And we've put at the heart of that being numerate. That's in the centre. A bit like the Singapore hexagon model where problem solving is at the middle. And that goes back to Lynn's point about problem solving, application, reasoning. You do need your set of skills, but actually you need to be able to do something with them. Uh, and then the third thing I think we need to do a lot of work on that's also wrong is the image of the subject. Um, it's the subject maths being numerate is not just what you do in maths lessons, and it's not just about calculation. It's about making informed choices and decisions and thinking mathematically as a consumer in your leisure life, etc. When you we interview learners, they talk about those sorts of things as just common sense. They're not maths. The maths things are what they do in the classroom. So I think there's a thing about valuing what is maths uh, elsewhere um, in order to uh, rectify the uh, image issue. Thank you.
3: Okay, thank you. I don't think I'm going to contradict what the two Linds have said too much, but we shall see. Um, I... uh, When I was thinking about this, um, I called to mind uh, an afternoon I spent in sole charge of 60 year 11s, where I'd raided some civil service papers from 1911. Uh, So I've drawn on those because I thought you might like to see some maths, but they do illustrate some points, I think. Um, First of all, from uh, definition wise, uh, ACME have taken numeracy to be uh, the, the latter of these two, so a proficiency which involves confidence as well as competence with numbers and measures, and the ability to solve problems in a variety of contexts. That's within and beyond mathematics. Uh, From 1911, you might enjoy this question. Uh, For those of you who are uh, whippersnappers, uh, it's not too bad numerically, because two and ninepence is half of five and sixpence. Um, But apart from the political messages... Uh, I'd suggest that the underlying ideas of proportional reasoning um, are as central uh, a prerequisite to uh, mathematical competence as they were 100 years ago. So we've got there, problem-solving, fluency, robustness with numbers, but proportional reasoning. Uh, On the other hand, arithmetic perhaps just relates to the quantity. I would suggest there's an exercise like this where you have to add up horizontally and vertically, and hope that the two totals tally, uh, which certainly kept year 11 out of mischief, Uh, remembering that there were 12 pennies to a shilling, 20 shillings to the pound. um, I don't think that's actually a a core skill um, that should be central to today's classrooms. Um, On the other hand, um, perhaps a sense of uh, basic number procedures with... uh, small numbers fluent um, and then uh, bigger numbers, silly numbers, uh, address those with electronic tools used appropriately. So that means that we we really must have robust skills of estimation and so on. Um, Arithmetic then perhaps is a subset of numeracy. Um, I'd suggest that this problem goes beyond either. So again, from the civil service exams... Uh, This has rather less structure than we want to see on school examination papers. Um, Bears a remarkable resemblance to some very good materials being developed by MEI. And essentially, it's about modelling. Nobody's telling you quite how to work out that area, A, B, C, D. So you've got a handle on it. Um, But there's also quite a lot in the way of thinking through your units Deciding whether what you've got is sensible, making appropriate approximations, and so on. Um, so, I'd assess that's beyond uh, basic numeracy. Uh, maybe even I might put that under the heading of mathematics. Age wise, um, I couldn't agree more than with the uh, two ladies who went before me. Um, so, uh, I do really believe deep down that mathematics begins preschool. So I, I think these are false distinctions about there's an age when you're ready for mathematics. Um, I do think that we should conceptualise uh, mathematics development as from birth in, in a continuum, um, hopefully not too disrupted by the schooling uh, structures. Um, all young people are curious. All young people respond to challenge if you keep their confidence. Um, I I do fundamentally believe that all young people can enjoy mathematics and succeed with it if we go about it the right way. Um, ACME has a clear position on this. Uh, The ACME Mathematical Needs Reports, uh, of which there were two, um, state categorically that all young people are entitled to a maths education, which includes the range of mathematics components um, that includes development of appropriate habits of mind. Um, and that to provide them with that is a question of both equity and of empowering our forthcoming generations. Uh, employers and higher education are clear that we need many more young people with more robust mathematical skills and the ability and confidence to apply those reliably. Um, so, more young people who know more mathematics. Um, and in particular, who can model and solve a variety of problems. Those two requirements, we believe, are not incompatible, um, but they do need creative and knowledgeable teaching. Very, very big challenge for us, and it's an issue which Acne comes back to in a number of responses. Um, there are plenty of those around at the minute, in case you haven't noticed. Um, we do believe that the focus for the 21st century maths curriculum should be on problem solving, both within and beyond maths, um, supported by the usual things that you know about. We do believe that technology is underutilised in maths education at the minute, that technology affords uh, a range of exciting ways of supporting the exploration and better learning of mathematics, as well as supporting the use of maths. And we're only really beginning to come to grips with that, and I I suspect that's a a rather generous statement. Um, We do think that all young people should regularly experience um, challenge, collaboration, excitement in mathematics, um, should have the opportunity to explore and to create, to make links across and beyond maths curriculum, um, and that we need to do much, much better in developing skills of communicating mathematical thinking Um, in our schools and colleges. Fundamental to that is the affective characteristic development that we've already talked about. So these things like resilience, perseverance, are so, so important if we want our young people really to uh, use their mathematics confidently. Um, We believe that that can only happen if we uh, pool all our resources to develop a whole system consistency and coherence um, but is properly evidence-based um, and we do think that that actually needs cross-party consensus um, because our young people's uh, education and the, uh, the future of this country really is too important to be destabilised and undermined by political short-termism. So, those are our core messages.
4: Okay, I mean, I'm pretty clear that we need, do need to discuss uh, what should be in and what should be out in terms of uh, our general education and look at that in respect of what should be in and what should be out for children of a particular age. Um, I'm clear that we, should, we need to be very very confident in the evidence and development processes that we use to drive the development of a national curriculum, of the school curriculum, and of qualifications. And I think in respect of a national curriculum in particular, there should be concern about broad education and fundamental knowledge and skills, foundational knowledge and skills, uh, under the general rubric of a a common entitlement. I call this arranging Quicksilver because I'm going to deal with some tangible and intangible elements of what we do around the mass curriculum. Um, uh, this may seem like a digression, but it's not. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty confident that selenium exists uh, as a distinctive element. I'm pretty clear that phlogiston, that gas which everybody thought was universally given off when something was consumed by fire, doesn't exist. Um... And I'm pretty clear that evidence does exist, that less tangible aspects of human performance, such as a concern for accuracy in engineering, does make a difference in relationship to competence in engineering. Pretty clear that mutual belief in the value of the euro is intrinsic to the real value of the euro. But um, I am a grumpy old empiricist, and I like to see evidence for things. I like to know whether they exist and how they exist. And the problem with mathematical knowledge, hence the term Quicksilver, and arranging it, is that it's very elusive to definition, and yet we constantly talk about it and use it as a concept of critique for what is being developed by particular communities by way of curriculum. That doesn't include key aspects of mathematical understanding is heard in many corridors. I'm not clear what that means. And I don't think problem-solving actually... Does it? I think problem solving is actually vital in mathematics education because it's the context in which we deploy things and those are the contexts in which people both learn and demonstrate what they know. But for any given mathematical problem, there are often many routes to solving it and producing a legitimate solution. And we should be concerned about the differences in the different approaches that individuals use, different individuals use, or the same individual on a different occasion, uses... ...to actually derive that solution. So just basing a a curriculum on the problems doesn't really do it. Okay, so as an assessment specialist... ...we know we observe performance in dealing with specific tasks... ...and we infer deeper mathematical understanding... and emergent understanding of relations... ...which are much more complex than that... ...through those surface performances. And the repetition of surface techniques... ...is often confused with mathematical knowledge... And there's a false opposition that's knocking around to say that mass knowledge is not linked to the ability to master and deploy techniques. But it's not exclusively tied to those techniques. We need to maintain a complex relationship and the complexity of that relationship between techniques, their application and the growth in an individual of mathematical understanding. I think a a robust curriculum experience actually exploits the relation between pedagogy, content, specification and assessment, but maintains the relations between technique, application and understanding. And that's the devil's own job. And that reality has to be managed in the classroom, in the school curriculum. A national curriculum can merely delineate aspects of content which constitute common entitlement. So problem solving won't do it alone. Right, now, let's just look at an empirically driven approach. One can, and indeed people have... Uh, ...looked at the uh, maths curricula from around the world. And in doing that, you can easily create the hardest curriculum in the world. Because you just take uh, uh, the uh, mathematics which is expressed across all the curriculum frameworks... ...and you look at which is the hardest element and how early is it taught. Combine all of those and you will get a totally and utterly unmanageable curriculum. So there are real dangers in a purely empirically driven approach... No, you need principles, and you need principles derived from the curriculum thinking in the maths community. And uh, basically, the current national curriculum wasn't constructed, for all its problems, um, through naive extraction of the hardest and the earliest expression of particular techniques. Although it does do this. That kind of empirical analysis does show you what's humanly possible for the majority to acquire by the age of 11. It then needs to be well organised by experts from the maths community. Uh, that is going on at the moment. But it gives rise to this issue, core sequence or audit at 11. Now I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, Ed Hirsch in the States uh, has really posited very strongly in these kind of analyses the notion of a core sequence. The appropriate sequence of concepts in a subject over time arranged in-year blocks which enable people to progress through a subject and by particular ages acquire the right foundational building blocks, the notion of a core sequence. But if we just take that problem-solving issue about how you construct a curriculum, we know that people will approach the same problem in different ways. They will acquire mastery of different techniques in so doing. So do we specify in a core sequence what should be tackled by people of a particular age? Or do we audit whether they have mastered the totality of the techniques that we expect them to have at a key point? And that's the age of 11. So that's where the assessment through national tests and the curriculum issues really combine. Okay, kind of, and finally, there are a few, there are a few uh, messages from the transnational evidence that I want to throw into the debate and discussion today. One is the standout element from Reynolds and Farrell's key work and Stigler and Stevenson's work from around the world. That basically, those nations, those jurisdictions that have done really well at both. Reducing equity differences and raising attainment in mathematics encourage the study of fewer things in greater depth during primary. The curriculum may look incredibly expansive, but when you explore, explore the textbooks, when you talk to the teachers, they concentrate on fewer things in greater depth. And that's an absolute standout feature. The other bete noire in all of this is practice. A uh, great deal of discussion about that recently. Now, this is not, the trouble is that. That in, in England, we equate or, or, or associate practice in mathematics in primary education with barren repetition. The same, somebody failing to do the same thing over and over and over again. And that's not at all what is meant or operationalised as practice in other jurisdictions. Far more time is spent on working through mathematical problems in other nations... Uh, And it's interesting, in that great uh, nation that we all turn to now, Finland... um, ...schools are actually told how much time children should spend on mathematics. Imagine doing that in England, the outcry that there would be. What we know, though, from the empirical data... ...is that in Hong Kong, Singapore and many other jurisdictions... ...where they have better equity and higher overall standards... ...kids spend more time tackling problems. They do more practice, but it's not the kind of practice we do in our society... It's expansive, it's exploratory and it constantly involves mathematizing a problem, working on it and then demathematizing it. It's incredibly rich and they do a lot of it and the society and individuals reap the benefit of doing it. Unreflective application of technique can actually turn into deeper understanding of relations in an entirely unpredictable way for individuals. And that's why more practice of the expansive kind is important. Anne Watson hates me saying this, but I have seen the light bulb go on with particular children just suddenly in an unpredictable way when they've been working on mathematical problems. And the thing is, you can't predict when that light bulb's going to go on for particular individuals. So basically, we have to do more expansive practice to get that light bulb going on more frequently. And you can't predict whether it's a high-ability or a low-ability child, as it were, who will have a problem with a particular area of mathematics. That argues, again, for more expansive practice. So that's it, really. I, rem- I think I'm quite proud of being a grumpy old empiricist, and I still, and I quite freely admit, I still don't know what maths understanding actually is. But I do know some things that we need to do to encourage better equity and higher overall standards of attainment. Thank you. Mm.
1: Well, an amazingly high degree of consensus, I felt. Or perhaps that was just me listening it from th- this end. You're all listening uh, to it out there. Who would like to kick off? If you can put your hands high. Um, I will then pick people off. Uh, if we start over there, but halfway up.
4: Um, <clears throat> Mark Dore, OCR. When my seven-year-old comes home from school, I say, what did you do in maths today? He said, nothing. He's not a boy of many words. Um, and then he's, I say, what did you do? And he said, numeracy. And I wonder whether using numeracy all the time is a mistake and we should just talk about maths and get children to understand from the beginning. And secondly, <clears throat> I think the reason we have this political ping pong is because the maths community can't sort themselves out and decide what's important and surely there's a responsibility on an ongoing basis to get that right
1: but there's a challenge to everybody on the floor given that you're mostly all mathematicians this is that, 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 that's a challenge um, it's interesting we, we, we had some uh, comments, we, we started this process uh, about a month and a half ago uh, uh, online um, and there's quite interesting comments coming through here this is from a student who who got it about a week after the, uh, after the test, please teach for understanding and provide additional time needed for kids to grasp concepts. I know it's difficult to teach perseverance and positive disposition. I think we've all mentioned that. Um, but being successful, understanding what one is doing, are certainly steps in the right direction. I mean, you, you've all been practitioners. Um, Tim's just mentioned you know, facility practice. Um, which is not the same as repeating. Um, but what's the difference between that and perseverance and positive disposition? I'll ask a random Lynn to pick this up.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's you, then. Is that you? No, no, no.
1: If yeah, you ever to put the hand up.
2: Some of the um, recent research that I'm sure lots of people have seen, the Sue Johnston-Wilder and Claire Lee stuff on uh, mathematical resilience... Um, Is quite interesting reading, and I think there's a link on the National Numeracy website uh, to some of it at least. Um, the, the disposition and um, uh, stick with itness, if you like. Um, so often, when you see learners of primary and secondary age in maths classrooms, the minute something requires some hard work or an alternative strategy, Um, they stick their hand up and say can you tell me how to do this or I'm stuck Um, and that doesn't quite happen in the same way in other subjects and for me that comes back to the um, uh, sort of status value perception of maths numeracy whichever mark as a subject Um, that we somehow manage to uh, educate learners from a very young age uh, even though they start with many mathematical intuitions early on um, that there's certain ways of behaving and performing that constitute being mathematical. And engaging your brain and persevering is sometimes not one of them for a lot of learners. Uh, and I, I don't know how, what we do about that, but I know it, it's, it's a big issue. And some of it, for me, is to do with messaging, constant messaging. One of the things we say to parents is, if you want to help your children with maths, the, the single most important thing you can do from tomorrow morning is to stop saying it's OK not to be good at maths. Stop saying that from tomorrow. And across the piece, you know, all adults working with learners from a very young age, stop saying that. So that the mindset, the attitudinal thing, um, is all pervasive, I think. Uh, and I don't know how you separate that from okay. understanding.
1: Thank you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask the audience a question now. This is the interactive bit. So, uh, um, cause this came through, uh, uh, amongst the discussion. Uh, on, online again those, the, for those teaching STEM subjects not mathematicians but those using maths in STEM subjects Um I think this goes to the heart of the problem so I'm actually going to ask the audience this you have two students taking the same test, 100 problems in five minutes, student A completes only 70 problems and they're all correct student B completes all 100 problems but 30 of them are wrong Coming back to what you were just saying, I don't think students actually think about whether they're good on maths. It's certainly at a young age, they want to be good students. They're trying to please the teacher. At that stage, they're not bothered whether it's maths or anything else. So, you have student A and student B. Which is the better student? And we we'll get on to the second question, which will the grades teachers give describe that, but which is the better student? Put your hands up for student A. 70 problems, all correct. OK. Student B, all 100, 100 problems but 30 are wrong. Who goes with that as being the good student? Right, so you don't want them to keep trying and failing and learning from their mistakes. You want them to get it exactly right every time, even if they do less. Is that right? Okay, no, okay put your hands up if you want to. Thank you. We'll start there and then the lady at the back there. And then I heard a shouting over here. Uh, don't shout out, just put your hands up. This is, this is a school, this is a class.
4: <laughs> it's, um, it's rather like being the bad student. Uh, Dan Thomas, Cambridge Centre for Sixth Form Studies. Um, I think your, your problem is too simplistic. The student who has attempted 70 and got them all right, how have they attempted that 70? Yeah. Have they tried and failed? Have they... Seen the answer quickly and worked through in a very methodical way, is it a bit slapdash? I think the question is too simplistic. The, the student's approach matters a lot. And whether they've attempted 70 and got them right or attempted 100 and got a selection of those right, I don't feel there's enough information there to state who is the better student.
1: OK, so that's the wrong question. The lady at the back... <laughs> Oh, not enough information. That's a very mathematical approach to things, yes. (laughs) Not not enough data. Uh, Right,
3: madam. I'm Serapis from NEF Innovation Institute and past mathematician, teacher, university lecturer, etc. You forgot the third option, that they're equally as good. The problem is trying to define what we mean by good and... Uh, each of those students will be good according to different standards. So if you wanted uh, somebody who was highly reflective, very accurate in their approach, etc., then possibly student A is good according to those standards if you want somebody who's going to be creative innovative uh trying out new things all the time then possibly b is better because they go at it and try out all all possible options so i think the third the third option that you left out the are both good that that would be my uh answer
1: okay thank you and then right down here at the front This is a question about exam technique, nothing to do with maths at all. Sorry, uh, could you stand up and let the camera see you and Sorry, beg your tell us who you are? <laughs> okay. So I'm Charlie Strip, I'm from um, MEI CTM.
5: I think you've asked a question about exam technique. You've let, you've let assessment get in the way again. Um, you know, it's nothing to
1: do with which student is best. They're both trying to get the best mark on the exam. They've employed, employed different strategies. That's all you can say. You're obsessed with assessment and not mathematics in that question, I think. Uh, um, so, so what would you be looking for, Charlie? Well, I, I think that um, based on that test, you know, in a, yeah, the, the, the students are, are taking a test and they've both scored an equal mark. Yeah, they're equally good because the task they've been set is to maximise their score on the test. That's not the same as being good at mathematics being able to solve mathematics problems. It's about exam technique. And that's actually the root to some of their problems, I feel. OK, fine. We're, we're, we're on a roll here. So, so what constitutes good? I mean, yeah, yeah, this, this, this is a question that's already been asked from the panel here. What do you consider to be a good student? Anybody? You, you, most of you are teaching at one level or another. What would you describe as a good student? There. So, uh, about halfway
6: down, just by the cameras. Hello, I'm Jack Abramsky. I'm a member of the outer circle of ACME and used to be on ACME. Um, I think one of the problems with today's education is that the assessment is actually driving the learning. And I think one of the challenges is that we need new assessment um, instruments that do explore mathematical creativity, do explore um, competence to solve problems in a range of contexts, problems to use transferable math skills, do exploit a, a candidate's confidence and knowledge of mathematics. And I think... Current assessments don't do that, and that's one of the problems with the current system. So, Tim,
1: sorry, you wanted to come in.
4: Yeah, thanks, thanks Bennett. I just wanted to pick up, really, this issue of um, what was, it was stimulated by the input from outside. I mean, Joe Bowler's work actually emphasised very strongly that there were highly gendered approaches to mathematical education. And uh, or mathematics learning. And, the, and one of the defining uh, and differentiating factors was the extent to which uh, the girls that she was working with wanted to move more slowly through uh, mathematical problems so they could actually understand the steps that they were taking. Whereas many of the boys saw it as a game of applying the technique correctly. Uh, and they would, uh, they would race through material very successfully, um, but not be able to... Uh, respond to more complex inquiry around the particular area of mass that they were working in. This is very important. Um, That that further um, throws into sharp relief some of the things that we're getting out of Asia. So Roger Pope's recent uh, uh, article on uh, his visit to China, where they were looking at um, kids' performance on rote learning versus understanding, what came out was very surprising, which was that the Chinese uh, children were actually scoring relatively poorly on measures of, of memorization. Um, but then they were using memorization only as a technique to, to move towards deep understanding of material. This is often not understood of these kind of systems. But I was saying this is in the context of much more expansive um, application of mathematics, more time spent on it, uh, applying in more varied circumstances and problems. That in turn is interesting in terms of the textbooks, because in those Asian settings, having done the textbook analysis, the mathematical concept or operation that you are looking at in a particular learning exchange is made much clearer in those societies. And so the children are actually pursuing, as it were, understanding of a particular idea through the problems. And what's important is they know they are doing that. They're not just working through techniques in a barren way, they're actually chasing the understanding of a particular concept. And that is very, very evident in those systems and in those pedagogies where higher attainment is derived from the learning exchange. So picking up on, this, on uh,
1: Jack Abramsky's point, um, does that mean that their assessments are aligned with that, that form of teaching? So they're actually asking the kinds of questions that elicit those kinds of responses?
4: The answer is that there's a, very, there's a much better interplay, as I described in my presentation, between the concepts and high demand problems. And the, the child has to go through this mathematizing, solving, and demathematizing routine as an explicit part of the learning and of the assessment. So that particular model drives the pedagogy and does seem to drive better outcomes for a broader range of, of, of students. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. uh, sorry.
6: Okay. Uh, John Price, Cardiff University um, <laughs> when I sort of shouted out <laughs> in response to your um, description of the solving of the problem um, I was not objecting to the problem itself but to the way you described um, the trying and failing or something like that um, the Context in which I thought such a task of um, having 100 problems and you do 70 of them, or you do 70 of them right, um, where would that be a real task that one ha- would have to do um, in real life? And I was thinking of um, you are um, uh, working out the pay slips for 100 employees. And in that context, the person who gets the 70 right and then asks the boss for a bit more time to get the rest of them, that is the good student, right? (laughs) Um, And um, a a slightly more schoolish sort of context would be But you certainly couldn't expect to be doing this in, what did you say? Five minutes or something? (laughs) Um, You've got a a, a hundred um, um, algebraic formulae and you've got to um, um, expand them out or something like that. Um, Important skills that need to be learnt. Um, In that case... Again, I would think that it's the people who get them all right are the ones who are to be praised. Um, there are other cases, particularly assessment in exams, mm-hmm. um, where the rubric says um, try um, seven questions out of a possibility, possible ten. You are allowed to do as many as you like, but the worst three will be discarded fair enough in that situation you know, do as m- do all ten, and the rest three will be discarded, but um, I think we do have, as other people have said, to distinguish the context
2: okay.
1: and then Jennifer just behind you uh, yes, just there
5: thank you, it's Keith Jones from the University of Southampton and uh, in my work I've been fortunate to to uh, get to China and Japan and other parts of the Far East. And um, it's true that in China there's some very good classroom teaching, but they also have concerns. And they have a term, but I, I can't remember what it is in, in Chinese, but it's uh, that students, they get students who are good at passing tests, but are good for nothing else. And when we say um, these outcome measures, you know, they're, they're better out, they get better at some outcome measures, it really depends on what those outcome measures are. And I want to, 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 to think more broadly about this and uh, what a better mathematics curriculum could be in, that in thinking that a lot of the new developments in mathematics are in visual and spatial things. If you think about uh, cosmology, if you think about um, use of the internet um, and that sort of networking, uh, they're much more about these visual and spatial things. And I couldn't help... Watching the initial video and the video Limbicure showed, and thinking there's an awful lot of spatial thinking going on there, and I just wonder, I've got this niggling doubt that if we, by concentrating on in the topic this morning of numeracy, we're actually um, taking away some of the creative part of mathematics, which comes from the visual and the spatial. That if we did more of the visual and spatial. We may get better outcomes, and we might be doing something that uh, will show countries elsewhere how to develop mathematics, just as we have done in the past. Mm. We are constantly told, you know, this country is not very good at it, but we have some of the best mathematicians in the world, and we we've done that because we've s- strengthened the visual and the spatial thinking through geometry. If we if we, um, I have this feeling that if we don't if we neglect the geometrical side, the spatial and the visual, we might be doing a disservice everywhere. When we talk about proportional reasoning, there's a very, very strong spatial and visual element to that. If we don't do that, then I think we might be getting it wrong.
1: Thank you. Um, yes, by all means. Yes.
2: If you get a chance, Keith, to look at the um, National Numeracy website under our Essentials of Numeracy, there is Shape, Space and Measures as an element of that for the
1: very reasonably described. So this lady down here, and a gentleman immediately opposite and then the lady at the back there, so in that order. One, two, three.
0: Hi, I'm Lillian Nandy. I'm going
3: to be terribly... Could you could you stand up? Sorry. Um, I'm Lillian Nandy. I'm going to be terribly controversial here. Um, as I understand it, the private sector is better at turning out um children that are good at maths and everything else than the public sector. So is it worth making a study of the techniques and the curriculum and the ideology employed by the private sector and then to replicate it? I mean, we have this on our own doorstep. We don't have to go all the way to China.
1: A very good question. Um, Let's let's take a round of three and then then I think that will wake everybody up, which is just towards the end. Yes.
4: My name is Joy Nandi. I used to teach in South Bank University. I've got a question about the very form and structure of your assessment. Should not the structure and the form of assessment should be such that it not only measures the accuracy of the answers given by the students, but how much each student is actually enjoying the... Activity in the maths class. Thank you.
1: Right. I shudder to think how we do that. Uh, yes. We'll do a quick
3: I'm Hannah Bird. I work for the Quantitative Skills Programme at the British Academy. We work with um, humanities and social science disciplines at university. There was a high degree of consensus amongst you all that. Mass learning should start at preschool. There needs to be a generational change. But I'm wondering, what do you have any insights for universities as to what they can do sooner than in a generation um, to work on numeracy at that level?
1: And now I regret to say we are running out of time, just as it all takes off. Uh, so I'm going to ask our panel. You've got honestly a minute each um, to take. Well, any part of that you, you care to take and, uh, and, and wrap up. So shall we start? Do you want to start again, Lynn? Mm-hmm. OK, fine.
0: So I suppose for me, the big thing is that the point of doing mathematics is to be able to solve problems. And that all the fluency um, and all the mathematical reasoning is in order to enable you to solve problems, whether those are problems within mathematics or whether they are real-life model- uh, problems that you have to model. And I think that in order to make mathematics seem appropriate for children of all ages, we need to make sure that we use problem-solving as a way of consolidating as well as for consolidating uh, from when they're very young. Sorry. Um,
2: I'd probably, and I'm not sure whether, it, to what extent it addresses any of those three questions, um, certainly the enjoyment side. I think developing the attitudes of mind that are around people being willing to solve problems... Um, recognising that actually if you don't succeed at first then try another alternative Um, that that's a perfectly appropriate mathematical way to behave and it is about numerate or mathematical behaviour as much as it is about what you can presently do because one of the things we, we want to promote is the notion that it's a journey um, and it's a lifelong journey and you're carrying on developing your numeracy competence from wherever you are to the next point and that you take responsibility for that as an individual. Okay.
3: Jenny? Um, I am going to pick up the private sector points. <laughs> um, uh, I, I do think that we uh, learn quite a lot reciprocally, actually, by looking at the state and the private sectors and, in fact, maths-made-to-measure draws uh, equally on both. There are lessons to be learnt both ways to surround... Um, the independent sector do operate in a different system where there are different constraints and affordances, and I, I think those need to be taken into account. Um, within the state sector, I'd reiterate that so many of these points seem to me to be about developing a, a whole system which is cosis- co- uh, consistent and coherent, mm. um, from the teaching, and what any teacher is doing, letting a, a student just go through a whole lesson, getting things right, I can't imagine everybody needs to be getting stuck because they're not learning how they should be if they're, if they're not. Um, but you can't expect to address the, the teaching challenges unless the um, assessment actually measures the things that we value as a society. Um, All these issues are interrelated, and we have got to be more bullish about getting the big picture right.
4: Tim? Yes, I'd like, again, also to pick up this independent state question. i I, I'd just start by saying I don't think the UK education system, indeed in mathematics, is in crisis. I don't think it's in crisis. I just don't think it's improving fast enough. And that's the, that's the, the nature of the problem that we face... And Michael Young and I have done work on powerful knowledge, which shows very clearly there's a gap opening up in respect of content and pedagogy in different schools. It's not as simple as a state-independent split, but there are massive gaps opening up. And therefore we do need to devise a new domestic solution which is based on domestic and international best practice. Again, something which... This this development uh, of a national solution based on the identification and promulgation of best practice is not something we do well. Compared with other jurisdictions, uh, and that's where the challenge lies. And I hope that's a, a, an accurate characterization of where we are.
1: Thank you very much. Well, that's
4: enormous food for thought. Uh, at
1: which we will now have some food. Well, we will have some coffee. Coffee immediately outside in the foyer. Uh, we have just thirty minutes, which means getting your coffee quickly. Um, question sheets are in your pack. Please hand them. Write them now, or write them outside and hand them to James, who'll be stationed on the doors. Um, and viewers at home, uh, have a look at your coffee too. Professor Ho, we will come back to your question from Singapore later on. Thank you very much. Back in 15 minutes.
0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.